It's Friday, February 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Inflation has crept up to 7.5%, the highest it has been in 40 years. In practical terms, the average U.S. household is spending an additional $276 a month. The middle class also continues to be hit harder than other groups. Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how much inflation is costing them. Next, Russia has begun conducting military drills on the Ukraine border, worrying Western officials that they are readying for an invasion. In the meantime, President Biden has approved a plan to help Americans flee Ukraine if Russia does invade. Biden has warned Americans in the area to get out because things could go crazy quickly. Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, a New York couple was arrested Tuesday on charges that they laundered some $4.5 billion that was stolen in a breach of a cryptocurrency exchange. In 2016, almost 120,000 Bitcoin was stolen from crypto exchange Bitfinance. Federal officials wanted to make clear that despite the security of crypto, it is still highly traceable and criminals should beware. Justin Rorlich, reporter at The Daily Beast, joined us for the largest financial seizure ever by federal officials. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's time for this uh, government and all of us to be serious about the economic uh, situation that we're facing, the financial conditions that we have in our country and the responsibility that we have as as, uh, lawmakers. This inflation is real. It's harming people. Joining us now is Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Gwen. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about inflation. It's on everybody's mind right now. We just got some new numbers. So the U.S. inflation rate has accelerated to 7.5%. This is a 40-year high. We've been seeing it all over the place. We've been doing stories on it. The price of just about everything is going up. Groceries, utilities, rents, all that stuff is jumping up right now. But I like to talk about things in very practical terms, too, and found your article, you know, some estimates show that the way this translates to the average American is you might be spending $276 more every month. So Gwen, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, so if you take the goods and services that the average family spends on in a month, and you take that under 2% inflation, which is like, you know, about where it would be in normal times, and then compare that with how much they're spending on those same goods and services when it's 7.5%, and that all adds up to 276 bucks, which is, if inflation keeps on at the current rate, like that adds up to a, some real money there really fast. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's the burden on households. And, you know, it's considerable. And so where are we seeing a lot of these prices increase? Used car prices continue to drive up overall inflation. Food prices are going up. Energy prices are going up. Those are some of the key points where everybody's getting hit. There are a couple themes here. Food prices those are being affected by a lot of the same supply dislocations that you're seeing with goods. And, you know, the goods story, we, we've all heard about the chips, the chip shortage that is making cars so scarce that yeah. you have used car prices up 41% in January. So that's affecting all kinds of things like living room furniture, 20% increase in January, major appliances, 10%. Anything that has to travel long distance, made in a factory, go maybe over the ocean and then like get unloaded to port, 
loaded into a truck or a train, like it's just the costs are piling up throughout the supply chain. And that's really filtering through to customers in a way that like we haven't experienced as, you know, you noted at, at the top in decades. Yeah. The economy is growing very fast. Obviously, we're coming down from the lows, right, of the pandemic. So we're expanding very fast. Wages are going up for some, not everybody, but a lot of people. And so how does that balance out with this story of inflation? Yeah, that's a great way of framing it because it is, you know, this inflation news is genuinely pretty scary, but it's offset by the main cause is that people are spending a lot. So that is kind of wages are growing a lot. So they're able to spend. And, you know, of course, also there were fiscal stimulus throughout the last two years has helped a lot, you know, buffer people's savings. But, you know, these are kind of people are financially healthy in a way they haven't been in, you know, since the financial crisis on average. And the economy is booming and grew faster last year than it had since, you know, 1984, I think. So, you know, you have this like actually pretty good story that has a really big downside to it, which is prices are through the roof. There was a study done by Wells Fargo that you noted in your article, breaking down how different groups are going through this. The middle class households obviously always kind of take the short end of the stick, but they're being squeezed harder than other groups. And and there's a bunch of other demographic data we learned through that study from Wells Fargo. That study did a good job of kind of breaking out like how this pain from inflation is distributed across different demographic groups. And I should say that the 276 bucks a month, like that figure came from uh, Moody's Analytics. So this Wells Fargo study, you know, kind of slices things a little bit at a finer grain. And you get some kind of interesting differences there. Now, a lot of these differences have to do with like how much of your spending basket is typically devoted to cars and like buying a new car, buying a used car and gasoline. So of the major races and ethnicities, Hispanics and Latinos have a pretty considerably higher, are experiencing a higher inflation burden because their spending baskets skew a little more in that direction. Similarly, middle class people have that same kind of bias. So their inflation's weighing harder on them. Yeah, higher earning households, they spend a lot more money on dining out, recreation and education, all those things that haven't been hit the same way by inflation. Yeah, that's right. Their spending basket, you know, they people in the upper income group tend to have more children on average. So, you know, education is a big piece of that. And that's like gone up, you know, somewhere around 2% or something like that. And actually, I hear from a lot of seniors who are struggling a lot. So, you know, again, this is all averages. Individuals have totally different stories. But because they have a much, much, much bigger share of their spending going towards healthcare, and healthcare services have, you know, they've gone up, but somewhere around the 2% region, like, that is keeping the lid on their inflation experience in a way that it's not for the younger folks who who are paying more of their budget, more of their budget's going towards right. other things, like notably the transportation stuff. Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. What I've asked is American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. Joining us now is Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the situation in Ukraine. It still remains very tense. Russia 
could be poised to invade at any moment. That's what we hear. Russia says they will not be doing that. But, you know, what we're seeing right now is uh, the Russian military do a bunch of drills on the border of Ukraine. Western officials think that this is just them gearing up for a, a potential invasion. And what we're also seeing is the president approve a Pentagon plan to help Americans flee the country if Russia invades. This has a lot of shades of Afghanistan. Nobody wants a debacle, a disaster to happen like that did. So, I mean, they say that it, the two countries and the situations are separate, and they are. But, uh, you know, a lot of people have that in the back of their minds. So what are we seeing with these current plans right now? So you're right. The, what you're seeing is the U.S. planning for a possible influx of Americans coming out of Ukraine into Poland in the event of a Russian invasion into the country. Specifically, I think there are concerns about a movement into the capital. And so the U.S. military now is setting up tents and other supply routes for those Americans who are coming through to Poland. I'm glad you pointed out the differences because they are stark. One of them is that the president has said that U.S. forces will not enter Ukraine, whereas in Afghanistan, they had been there for 20 years. The other difference is where in Afghanistan, there were very limited routes out short of air. There are numerous land routes by rail, by road that Americans can leave from. The similarity, I think, is that, you know, Afghanistan was just six months ago, and the evacuation, I think, the images of that evacuation are really seared in people's minds. And many of the military commanders who'd be involved in helping Americans out of Ukraine were instrumental in the U.S. effort in Afghanistan. And so I think for a lot of people in the military, when they were looking at the sort of lessons learned, they thought it would be applied to future generals and future conflicts, not that they would be in a situation where they would have to apply those lessons a few months later. Right away, exactly. So, And we have about 30,000 Americans that are in Ukraine. So again, a lot of people that if things start to go downhill will quickly need to be evacuated out there. And the president said himself when he asked, when he was asked about it, he said, if I have people there, I would be getting out. That's right. You know, it's interesting about that 30,000 numbers. There's only 7,000 that have registered with the State Department. So in terms of where people are, they only know about where a quarter or a fifth of those Americans are. So part of the challenge would be finding Americans. And because there are various routes to get out, they might go from in different ways at different times and have different needs. And so one of the challenges in sort of preparing for such a mission is not only um, does the U.S. not know what Russia's intentions are or the timing of it or the scale of it, but how many Americans and the kinds of needs that they would have in the event of a Russian invasion into Ukraine. Just shades of Afghanistan. The situations are, are different, but it really illustrates the delicate balance of diplomacy right now. You know, if people start evacuating early from Ukraine, it could signal to Russia that, you know, there's no more diplomacy, everything's going haywire anyways, why not just go in? And, you know, so it's that delicate balance that really needs to be played here. And, and again, we don't want to be stuck in a situation where people are stuck if fighting starts. That's such a great point. And I think it's the most important comparison between Afghanistan and Ukraine, that some in the U.S. government are reticent to make moves towards a possible evacuation or urging Americans to leave too aggressively because they're afraid that it signals to Russia that the U.S. believes diplomacy is dead or that it becomes a point that Russia can point to and say, look, Ukraine, even your partners are worried and don't think that diplomacy is a solution. On the other hand, if one doesn't plan ahead, then you have a situation where people are in a really tight 
and complicated situation, a, a harried situation in some cases, and that there are second and third order effects for a lack of planning. So how do you delicately plan for something that could be very complex without signaling something other than the intended message, which is that the safety of American citizens living in Ukraine is paramount to the U.S. government, all while it is pushing for a diplomatic solution to the crisis on Ukraine's border. You mentioned earlier uh, at least two of the generals that played a major role in the Afghanistan evacuation effort are part of the planning here, most notably Army Major General Donahue, who was the last American to step on a military jet leaving Afghanistan. I think everybody knows that picture of him being the last one out. Um, So he's leading the troops in Poland specifically. Uh, As you mentioned, nobody thought they'd have to do it again so quickly, but here we are again with some of the same players. Well, what's interesting is General Donahue was one of the last ones out of Afghanistan. He's one of the first ones into Poland. He arrived last Saturday. And Afghanistan, I mean, he wasn't just there, but he was really leading operations at Hamid Karzai International Airport and is now part of the operations in Poland to prepare for a possible evacuation of Americans. And so in Afghanistan, he was instrumental to the U.S. operations there, had to make adjustments as the growing number of civilians who were increasingly desperate sought to leave one available runway out of Kabul. And so this is someone who will be intimately aware of some of the challenges of, a, of an evacuation, but also face very different circumstances in terms of the kind of threat, whereas in Afghanistan, there was the Taliban and insurgency outside the doors of the evacuation zone. In this case, it would be a very powerful and large conventional force that would be between the U.S. and its potential efforts to get Americans out. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The department has charged Ilya Lichtenstein and Heather Morgan for their alleged roles in a conspiracy to launder stolen cryptocurrency taken during the 2016 hack of a virtual currency exchange. Joining us now is Justin Rorlick, reporter at The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Justin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting story that happened on Tuesday. A New York City couple was arrested by federal agents on charges of laundering some $4.5 billion in stolen Bitcoin. This goes back to a 2016 cryptocurrency exchange breach of Bitfinex. And we're talking about Ilya Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan. This story has everything, Bitcoin, NFTs. The, I guess they got a PPP loan at some point. Heather Morgan herself is a, a, an aspiring rapper. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on here. So, Justin, what did they do? How did they get their hands on all of this Bitcoin? That's the unanswered question here. We may find out in court during the trial, and we may never find out. The unanswered million-dollar question is, what were they doing with this? How did they get it? They're accused of laundering the money, but a lot of people are asking why they would have been given all this Bitcoin to launder. They weren't professional money launderers as far as anyone knows. So like you said, this goes back to 2016 when the Bitfinex exchange in Hong Kong was hacked. At the time, the the Bitcoins were worth $77 million. So they appreciated in value by about 5,000% by the time Morgan and and Liechtenstein were arrested. Uh, The Fed's got about $3.6 billion of it back. And it's just unclear who 
stole it or how Morgan and Liechtenstein came into possession of it at this point. Let's talk about how they were laundering the money because there were some sophisticated stuff behind it, transferring between wallets, things like that. So how did they do that part of it, at least? They did their best to obfuscate the true source of the funds and any real names behind it. A lot of people think cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is anonymous and, and untraceable. And to a certain degree, it is in theory. But even if you have your cryptocurrency in a digital wallet under someone else's name, real life always intersects somewhere in an investigation. So in this case, the Bitcoin was in a digital wallet that investigators kept an eye on. And the digital wallets, they identified the wallet that it went into not too long after the uh, the hack, but they just didn't know who was controlling it. But they were able to trace the outflow from that wallet to various crypto exchanges where the two of them had accounts under different names. But they eventually located a couple of accounts that were in their real names, and they were able to connect the dots. Owning Bitcoin doesn't mean anything if you can't spend it. And the easiest way to do that is to turn it into cash, which generally involves transferring it into a bank account. Law enforcement can also trace IP addresses, and Liechtenstein was allegedly saving incriminating information to his iCloud account, or it was getting backed up to his iCloud yeah. account. So even if you delete whatever's on your phone, it's still on Apple servers, which the feds can get access to. And they further were able to identify transactions that the two of them had with Uber, Walmart, Hotels.com, and I believe PlayStation. So... There are always digital breadcrumbs that, that right. investigators can pick up. And to the point that you were talking about earlier about how some of this is traceable, that was one of the things that the district attorney in this case really wanted to make clear. You know, obviously, law enforcement has a lot of resources at their disposal, but that notion that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is untraceable, all that, they wanted to dispel that right away. They said, if you're doing bad stuff, you're a criminal thinking you're going to be hiding behind the anonymity of cryptocurrency you're wrong. And and this is a perfect case for it. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to remain anonymous in today's world, even with things like cryptocurrency that are that are kind of marketed as anonymous. Messaging apps like like uh, WhatsApp, uh, you know, which are end to end encrypted. Well, you know, if you're using an iPhone, a lot of times people don't turn off the automatic backup capability. So those WhatsApp messages maybe are getting deleted from your phone or, or not being able to be intercepted in transit. But, you know, I've seen a multitude of cases where FBI agents were able to access that information off of somebody's iCloud account or something of that nature, something equivalent. It's going to be really um, interesting, uh, you mentioned earlier too, to see what evidence does come out in the trial, who else can get nailed on being part of this thing. You know, investigators think that it's not just them two, right? It's There's a lot of people involved in this possible scheme. So the evidence to come out will be interesting. Uh, they were in court already. They both got bailed out by their parents. Uh, <laughs> an interesting thing. Um <laughs> Well, we'll keep an eye on this case as it progresses. A lot of interesting stuff. This was the largest seizure of cryptocurrency by the federal officials and the largest financial seizure ever. So just a lot more information probably to come out for all of it. Justin Rorlick, reported the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.